Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Dave and Stephanie Van Hook, they're a part of our elder team. Dave's going to come up with his wife, and they're going to read to you from Mark chapter 11 as you find your seat again. They came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say, from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Maybe it's more like this. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and in the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. I have to tell you, really the most frightening realization I think that I've ever come to is just the realization that I'm not in control. I wish I, wish I was, um, or at least I think I do. I think I would like to be in control. But I think the past two years have really solidified that realization, at least in my own life. And you probably feel the same way, where you feel like things have just been so chaotic and outside of the realm of your control. I'm at the mercy of a virus that I don't understand. I'm at the mercy of a government that I I feel frustrated with and admittedly have some trust issues with at this point. I'm at the mercy of a volatile season, as volatile a season as I think I've ever seen in my life, socially. Uh, as volatile a season as I've ever seen in my life politically and economically, I'm, I'm really not in control. In fact, it just reminded me, uh, saying that about what a weird season. Did you see this last week or two weeks ago that, congratulations, you now live in the least affordable city in America? It's a great thing. Just thinking about all the things outside of our control and how it affects our lives how it makes things so much more difficult, and we wish that we could change those things, but my frustration really is not just that I recognize that I'm, out, that I'm not the one in control, that things are out of my control. The thing that's a real challenge is that then you're left with the second question of, well, then if I'm not the one who sits in any seat of authority that has control, then who or what is behind all of this? Who or what is in control? And then When it feels like things are spinning out of control and are absolutely chaotic, I can start to wonder, God, if you're still in control in this situation, then where are you and what in the world are you doing? Why would you allow these things? And I'm assuming I'm not the only person who's thought this way over the last couple of years or or especially even just over the course of this last week as we've watched Ukraine and Russia, all of this play out, that 
that you probably, like me, feel a reminder that you're not in control, but then a reminder that kicks in as a person of faith that we believe that God is, but then we sit back and go, but God, it looks so chaotic, and so we can start to question and wonder. It's the struggle and tension that exists in our hearts of, God, where are you in moments like this, and and are you actually still seated in control? And I'll tell you that that this passage and this series of stories that takes place in the life of Jesus really served this week in my own life as God's gentle response to that tension and those questions. And my hope today is that it does the same for you. Because what we're going to walk through quickly this morning is we're going to walk through these encounters Jesus has, where remember on the heels of him going into the temple and turning everything upside down, He's going back in the next day, and he's going to have these encounters, not just encounters, but confrontations that he's going to have with the religious leaders and the whole system. And I want to view this moment, this series of stories, through two perspectives, one being that we'll slow down to take a a detailed look at at least a couple of these interactions, although I'll tell you in advance we're going to save some of that for next week, because what I really want to do is make sure that we get a 30,000-foot view of what happens on this specific day in the life of Jesus, because I believe that Mark keeps these stories together and gives them to us in such detail with intent and purpose. What you'll notice is that we're going to see that this takes up a a decent chunk of real estate inside your Bible, and that's because Mark is trying to point something out to the readers, his first century audience, who are the recipients of his gospel. He's wanting them to see something very specific from a a high view that's just looking at the day as a whole. So we'll look at some details, but then I am going to hop, skip, and jump over some other sections, and we'll come back next week because I don't want you to miss the 30,000-foot view. Remember, this is Passover week that this is all taking place in, that week that would commemorate what God had done in the past to provide a deliverer that set his people free from their captors, from their oppressors, And so this was a feast that would be celebrated in commemoration of what God had done, but it was always also celebrated in anticipation. Remember, the people are under occupation right now. They're living under Roman rule. This is a hard regime that they're they're feeling the pinch and the pressure underneath of. And so for them to celebrate this while being occupied is a very strange, conflicting set of emotions that it would bring to the surface with it. And remember, this is the final week of Jesus' life because by the end of Passover week, Jesus' life will come to an end. This is just days before that. We call it the Passion Week. We call it Passion Week from a Latin word, and the Latin word that's the root of passion, it speaks of suffering. This is the week of his suffering. That's the idea here. That's why we call it Passion Week. It's just a few days before he'll die. He dies on the 14th, Jesus does, the 14th day of the month of Nisan. It's the day that that they would commemorate the Passover lamb with a feast and then the giving of those lambs that would be slaughtered and sacrificed where Jesus becomes just that for us. The sacrificial lamb that you remember from the book of Exodus is they shed the blood of the innocent substitute and sacrifice. They took the blood and applied it to the doorposts of their home so that the judgment of God would pass over them. So also we apply the blood of Jesus, the doorposts of our hearts at the gateway of our soul. And because of that, the judgment of God passes over us. Just days before that 14th day of the month of Nisan, days before on the 10th day of the month, the people referred to that day as the Lamb Selection Day. Because the book of Exodus had encouraged the people, had instructed them to leave their homes on the 10th of Nisan and to go and to select for themselves their lamb that they would use as their substitute and sacrifice. After that day, they would then take those lambs to be, uh, to be examined by the priests. They, they would take them to be examined by the religious leaders. They had to have a lamb that was spotless, that was without a blemish, that didn't have a flaw. And it, it would either be pronounced by the religious leaders as being unclean and unfit for sacrifice, or they would publicly pronounce the lamb as clean. They would say that this is, this is good. I find no fault here. There's no flaw here. And because of that, it is a suitable sacrifice. It was all a foreshadow of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, our Passover, is what Paul would write to the church in Corinth. And we pick up our story in the midst of that week and that process where Jesus has already entered Jerusalem and been celebrated as a king, and now as he's landing back in the temple, 
It's this time frame where people are receiving their lambs. They've chosen their lamb, and those lambs are now being inspected. In fact, there's two leading schools of thought about the timeline of Jesus' final week of his life. And some uh, would say that they believe that Jesus entered into the city on the 10th of Nisan, the day of the selection of the lamb. And what did the crowd select on that day? They said, Hosanna, save. Save now, save now. Others would say that the lamb selection day actually took place on the day that Jesus entered the temple and overturned the sacrificial system. Remember, by, by knocking over uh, the tables of the money changers, by kicking over the chairs of those who were selling the sacrifices, that that was the day when people were selecting their sacrifices. And now what we find Jesus doing is he's entering into the temple in the period of, a period of time where people are having their sacrifices examined to see if the religious leaders will pronounce them as without flaw. If they will pronounce that we find no fault, then the lamb has been approved and is good for a substitute and sacrifice. So as you picture the scene, because our story we just had read to us, it began with Jesus entering the temple. You need to picture people have lined up since before first light. Jesus is, has interrupted the whole system and, and the whole process of that week of hundreds of thousands of Jews who were going to have lined up to bring in their animal sacrifices. And he threw a day off because of what he did, all the commotion that he caused. And so all of these people are now frantically lining up to have their lambs, their sacrifices inspected by the religious leaders, knowing that's why they were there. And Jesus walks into the temple precinct, the temple mount, and he too will be examined by the religious leaders. In fact, Luke chapter 9, it's a verse that I want you to get some eyes on. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. It says that the Son of Man, here's what Jesus prophesied. Jesus prophesied that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Think about how specific Jesus is with this prophecy. He needs to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. We're going to see those individuals come and examine Jesus in this setting. When it says that he must be rejected, it's literally translated to reject after careful investigation. And this is the day when that will happen, where Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be inspected and carefully investigated. And what you're going to find is they're going to examine him in at least four different ways or four different areas publicly in this showdown and confrontation. The first is that they're going to examine his authority. The second is they're going to then examine his integrity. They'll then examine his theology. And then finally, Jesus brings it all together, saying that what they're really examining is his deity. And we're going to walk through these quickly together, and I'll forewarn you, we'll spend the bulk of our time on this first one. And so when we get past this first one, and you look at your watch and go, if he does this three more times, we're sunk. I know that. That's why next week we come back here. They first come and question and examine Jesus' authority. Do you remember verse 27? It was just read to you. Then they came ask again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, this is what Jesus had prophesied that they'd come at him, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? That's what they're asking. Not merely by what authority do you say these things, but by what authority do you do these things? Luke's gospel tells us that it's as he's publicly surrounded by a group of people for him to begin teaching. And they want to hear from this one who's come from Galilee, who's the miracle worker, surrounded by people that he's, he's healed, even an individual, Lazarus, who's he's raised from the dead, a person who made such commotion yesterday, overthrowing a corrupt system that existed inside the temple. They want to hear from Jesus. And as he's opening his mouth, he's rudely interrupted by the demand that Jesus answer, by what authority do you do these things? They come and make a huge scene. In other words, they're coming saying, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Remember, for all intents and purposes, Jesus had destroyed their marketplace. It was a clear challenge to their authority, and it was a blow to their pocketbook. And so they come putting their foot down saying, how dare you? Who gave you the right, the authority to come here and do these things that we read about him doing last week? Now think about it. If someone from our church showed up at your door this afternoon and, and, and knocked and you opened the door and they walked right past you, 
into your home and they, they walk to your refrigerator and into your cabinets and they're looking, hunting, and you don't know what they're searching for until you see them cracking open your beers and breaking open your wine bottles and drain pouring all of them. And then they go over to uh, your entertainment center and, and they're looking through all your DVDs and they start snapping all of them except for the ones that star Kirk Cameron. They keep those. They set those aside. And then they go into your bedroom and they go through your closet and they rifle through every shirt or, or pair of pants that doesn't have some sort of a Christian logo and they toss all of them in the trash. Now, if someone did that in your home, they'd be absolutely, totally and completely out of their mind and out of line because that's your jurisdiction, not theirs. You're responsible for what goes on in your home, and then you're accountable to God for what you allow to take place in your home. This is not Jesus going into someone else's home, though. He's not. By what authority are you doing these things? He's not walking into someone else's home where they're now, the religious leaders stomping their foot saying, how dare you do this on our turf? They're wrong, and that's what he points out here. This was his home, his house. These are his people. He has a right to put his foot down. You see, the religious leaders, they were not homeowners in our story. They were meant to be stewards. They're vine dressers. They're the ones who, who the, the, the property was owned by another, but the vineyard was leased out to them, hired servants, for them to tend and care for, to be stewards of what God had entrusted to them. But they no longer saw themselves as stewards. No, they were homeowners in their minds. Think about it. They, they were the hired servants in Jesus' story, given the opportunity to steward God's vineyard in, in Jesus' story. The hired servants, though, they get to the point where they say, as Dave just read to you, they, it's such a bleak and such a bad moment where they make the statement, let's just kill the heir, let's kill the son, so then it, it can't be left to anyone else. And what are they talking about being left? It's not just the vineyard, it's the authority to do whatever they want with the vineyard. That's what they're after. What they want is the power and control to do what they want and have no one tell them what to do and have no one asking them to be responsible for anything. They want to do what they want to do. That's what they're afraid of being threatened, and that's what was being threatened. Their power and their control was being threatened by Jesus because they're stewards, not owners. My friends, we're stewards. We're stewards, not owners. That's what we believe if you're a follower of Jesus. You're a steward, not an owner of anything that you have. What we have, it comes from God. That's what we believe. What we have, it's given by God. What we have, it belongs to God. And so I am just to steward it. We live in a world that uses people to get things. We're meant to use things to win people. That's the difference. To follow Jesus is not just to like, I'm going to be like the world, but I'm going to try to be a nicer version of the... No, no, no. It's absolutely countercultural. They use things, the, the broken world system, we're seeing this play out on a massive national scale. We're using, we're using people to accumulate things. We will hurt and exploit, suppress and murder people to gain things. The follower of Jesus is meant to view our things as a means to an end because we'll use anything, any resource that God allows us to steward in order to win people. We'll use those resources to bless and to care for, to win people to Jesus. That's what we are. We're stewards, not owners. When they come and they ask him, though, by what authority, Jesus, do you do this? It really is a, it's a giveaway to how dark and dastardly their hearts really are, because the Mishnah, which is this ancient set of rabbinic writings that they held in high esteem and an equal level authority to what scripture taught, the religious system was beginning to believe that, that what had been taught by the rabbis was held in equal authority. And the Mishnah said that if someone's authority was rooted in something that wasn't right, then they could be killed for it. So this question all of a sudden puts Jesus in a crosshairs where depending on how he answers, they could say that your authority is faulty. Your source of authority was bad. And so you acted in a way that you should not have. And so they could, by their laws, demand that Jesus be executed. This is what they're trying to do in this moment. But in a savvy Jack Sparrow-like manner, Jesus is like, I'll answer your question with a question. Well, if you're asking me, by what authority do I do this? And what authority did John have? Where did his authority come from? John the baptizer. And you, you remember in the story, because we just read it, they huddle up and they begin to discuss that they recognize that if we say from God, people are going to say, well, then why didn't you respect him? Why didn't you listen to him? Instead, you stood in opposition to him. But if we say his authority was not from God, but from man, 
Well, then the people were rebel and revolt against us. And so Jesus put them instantly in between a rock and a hard place. And they said, you know, we really don't know. They choose to stay neutral. And so Jesus responds, well, then neither am I going to tell you where my authority comes from either. There's this famous Old, Te- Old Testament passage, Malachi chapter 3, that I believe will pop up on the screen for you, that was written 400 years before the arrival of Jesus. And Malachi's prophecy was so well known because he's the last prophet who God spoke through to his people for a period of 400 years until Jesus would arrive, or actually until Jesus was preceded by another prophet, John the Baptizer. This extremely well-known prophet and prophecy is what I'd like to read to you. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in the first verse, where God promises, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. He's speaking, we know, from this side of this prophecy of John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. One of the prophecies, this one specifically, about what Messiah would do when he comes is that he'd come after that forerunner, the prophet, who is John the baptizer. And one of the things that Jesus would do is not just look to purify a nation, not just purify the people, but the Levites. The Levites are the priestly tribe in Israel. One of the prophecies that they knew well and anticipated is that one day Messiah would come and that he'd purify the priestly tribe and movement. We know from ancient writings that what they began to believe, which is it's people who are corrupted, who are in the seat of power, who get to tell you what this means, what they started to tell people is what he's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to drive anyone who doesn't follow us and think like us. He'll drive all of you out of here. Instead, what Jesus is, does is he points a finger squarely in their chest and says, no, it's you who's the problem. Jesus is calling Right now, uh, he, he's, he's showing them, pointing out that John's calling and authority were from God because they were foretold by God, as was what Jesus did even in the temple, that he'd go and purify the work of the Levites there in the temple. So he's really pointing out publicly that your attack is not against me. Your question about authority, you're pointing towards the ancient prophets and you're pointing to God himself. This is Jesus in this brilliant moment where he masterfully responds and you almost assume like maybe he had help or something like this line to the divine or or maybe was God in fact because he responds so masterfully in this moment. And I think his response would have taken the religious leaders off guard for sure because typically you would respond very similar to how people would today if, if they're questioned on their authority. Just think in our modern setting, it's very difficult to picture, I know, but if someone had a strong opinion about a virus or something like, and you said, well, hang on, how, how are you so opinionated? How do you know this? And they'd, they'd probably tell you, I'm an epidemiologist. And you'd be like, well, okay then. Or they might say like, I watched a YouTube video. Like you'd give your credentials. That's what people would expect Jesus to do, especially back then. You'd speak up and you'd say, here's the rabbis I studied under. Let me quote to you what my rabbis have taught me, and let me now point to you uh, what the Old Testament scriptures are saying and my take on those things. And if you left people feeling impressed, you kind of drop the mic and walk away. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he answers their question with his own. And the religious leaders refused to answer him and simply said, well, we don't really know. They're really saying, we'd rather stay neutral We want to stay neutral with the crowd. We don't want to create any problems for ourselves, but Jesus won't allow them to stay neutral. He tells them a story. And the parable has has the edge of a sword to it. He uses the the parable of the vineyard owner. The story finishes by telling you in verse 12, at least in my translation, New King James, that they wanted to lay hands on Jesus. This is not them wanting to hug it out. This is them determined to hurt and harm Jesus. They're coming out of their skin in the moment as Jesus tells that story about the vineyard and those who are given the the ability and, and the charge to care for and steward the vineyard. They realize that Jesus was speaking of them. In fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, he gives us very interesting backstory about the temple itself and the outer courts. And what he tells us is that it was beautifully ornate 
and had fashioned out of bronze and gold vines and grape clusters that were the size of a man. Jesus is literally teaching this story in a vineyard, in a beautiful, ornate, golden vineyard. That's what Josephus tells us. And so no one who's sitting there is going, I wonder who he's talking about or what he's talking about. He's talking about the people who were given the charge to steward God's vineyard, which they were sitting inside of. In fact, in the Old Testament, this is a theme that comes up again and again, that God compares the nation of Israel to a vineyard. It's a picture and a metaphor for Israel. Psalm 80 is an example of that. Jeremiah chapter 2. Ezekiel 5 is an example of that, but the most famous one that's really a parallel passage to this one, to Jesus' story, comes from Isaiah chapter 5. In fact, when Jesus starts the parable here, you might have noticed that he even gives some unnecessary fun facts about this vineyard that Jesus tells the story about, where where he starts to talk about how uh, these unnecessary details about like, well, you know, he came and, and he put it on a fruitful hill. He removed stones. He prepared the ground. He, he planted the choicest of vines. He built a, a tower to protect it and a wine press to the side. It's all of these details that by the end of the story, you're like, that didn't advance the plot at all. Like, why add all of those details? That's actually the descriptors, the exact descriptors that are given in Isaiah 5 of God's great vineyard. So the minds of everyone were already like, hey, we understand who he's talking to. He's talking to these guys about how well they're taking care of this whole system that God has left to them. And and now their minds go back to, oh, Isaiah chapter 5. We know this story. Okay, yeah. What they also knew is many of your Bibles caption it as God's disappointing vineyard, that section of scripture. They knew that the story in Isaiah 5 was a scathing look at the people that God was trusting to lead and care for his people and a promise of judgment where God says in Isaiah 5, he says he planted his vineyard. It was his beloved is the term that's used. It's beautiful. It it echoes to us and reminds us of John the baptizer again and Jesus. When the father would say of Jesus in the moment at his baptism that he would say, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. The vineyard in the story had everything it needed to be successful and blessed. But in Isaiah 5, it says, but it brought forth useless grapes. And then the haunting question is asked, Isaiah 5, where God says this to his people, judge please between me and my vineyard. He's saying, who's at fault? Who's at error? Who's to blame? He asks them, he says, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not been willing to do for it? And then in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, the prophet does. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And in response to their rebellion, after doing everything he could for the vineyard, God warned that he would allow judgment and destruction to come on his people. So when Jesus here tells a parable about some wicked vine dressers, everyone who gathered knew this was an accusation about the religious leaders who were present. This was an indictment against their corruption. The ones to whom God had entrusted the care of his precious vineyard, his people, They knew the indictment was aimed at them. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the parallel passage to this in chapter 21, it says, when the chief priests and the scribes heard this parable, they knew that he was speaking about them. This is why they were so incensed and sought to lay hands on him that they were determined to end his life. And Jesus will finish that story by then quoting from a psalm, a familiar one, Psalm 118. It's a familiar one because it's one we referenced just two weeks ago when Jesus entered the city and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save now, save now. Oh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118. The very next portion of Psalm 118 is what Jesus then quotes here. Where he says, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You might remember some of the prophetic imagery of a stone, even from Daniel. The prophet Daniel in chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, a vision of a, a massive statue that Daniel comes and explains, it's it's a picture of these world-dominating empires that will come, but then there's a stone that's not hewn with hands, it's not made by men. If those represented empires built by men, there's an empire coming, a kingdom that will arrive, 
that is not made with human hands, but is cast down from heaven itself and comes colliding with the world's empires and systems, shattering and breaking, crumbling all of them. That is Jesus who we look forward to seeing. That is Jesus who comes to end all of these rulers who, yeah, different rulers, same rules, one after another throughout all of human history. We're seeing it again in our broken world this week. We long for Jesus, the one who comes from heaven and will end all of that. That's the promise of scripture. So our minds go towards what Jesus will do as the stone, but the psalmist, he uses imagery of a cornerstone or maybe other translations would say the chief stone or most important stone, even the capstone. The capstone that was rejected becomes the chief of the stones, the most important ones. There's old Jewish folklore that's back from the time about a thousand years before Jesus about this stone that the psalmist is supposedly referencing. That's what many believe. The the old folklore story is that when Solomon first built the temple, that he had a master architect who had drawn everything out and they were going to fit every stone. Remember, this is one of the ancient wonders of the world. They're going to fit every stone so that it didn't even need mortar to adhere. They would so finely chisel and cut them and place them that it would fit so perfectly. And so they map it all out and they begin to quarry them just outside of Jerusalem. You can still go and find the ruins of that quarry today. And then they would drag those massive stones up into the Temple Mount, onto the Temple Mount, and that's where they would construct the temple. No chisel would be found atop the Temple because that atop the Temple Mount because that was sacred space. They said that was for the worship of God, not the working of hands. And so they quarried everything separate. The first stone in the story that arrived was a stone that they they couldn't understand, like what in the world, the odd shape of it all. They had no idea what it was, and they thought it must have been a mistake, and so it was discarded. It took years to build the temple, but when they got to the point where they're at the final stages and going to put the final piece in place, they sent word to the quarry saying, we're short a stone so that this thing doesn't crumble on itself. We need the capstone, the chief stone. The quarry said it's the most important stone, so it's the one we sent first. And then someone remembered. There was a rejected stone that didn't fit what we had anticipated or what we expected, the way that we would build this thing. We didn't find a place for it, and so we discarded it. And there they found it down the hill amongst the weeds. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief capstone and was placed over the final arch to keep it from collapsing onto itself, the temple itself. Think about it. The builders had meant well, but they'd let their own ideas and expectations blind them to the intent of the master architect to build God's house the way that they had desired. Because they were so determined to do it the way they wanted, they failed to see the plan of God all along. And there stood Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the capstone, the point of it all. Everything God's eternal work was moving towards stood before them and they were rejecting him. It's an indictment, a crazy indictment Jesus is making here. By calling himself the rejected cornerstone, he's touching on the irony that the very crowd who had sung Hosanna would soon chant crucify, and ultimately they would self-destruct and crumble because of it. And all of this will take place in response to a vineyard owner who only loved and loved and loved and loved and provided for them who was patient to the point that when he could do no no, no more, that, that when he could send nothing or no one greater, he sent him his own son. We'll move on quickly, but before we do from this story, just think that's this, the real amazing point of Jesus' story is not just an indictment against them, but do you see the, the glorious picture it paints of who God is and what he's like? That you have this vineyard owner who's revealed as being so incredibly gracious and patient and loving towards people. He sends the prophets. They reject them. He he reveals the truth. They deny it. He's rejected and disrespected in every way, even his son now standing there. I mean, think about it. When he could have sent the SWAT team, instead in the story, he sends his heir, his son. Nothing better, no one greater could have been sent other than his own flesh and blood. I traveled some this last week. I didn't go far, but when I was traveling, I I was depending on Uber uh, for help quite a bit. And I sat with an Uber driver um, this week on one of my little short runs to and from a a place where I was gathering, um, who was from Nigeria. And I just said to him, man, as soon as I asked him, where are you from? He said, Nigeria. I said, 
I'm sure this week has been really hard because this has got to reactivate some of your own trauma. If you came here from a war-torn country and you've seen what this can look like in the streets of places that you love and that you grew up in, and, and the man caved and said, I could no longer bear to hear my wife cry every night begging God to make it stop. And he began to tell me about losing his faith and what that did to his own life, hearing his wife grieve. And the first chance they got to get out of their country, they did. And then they hop, skipped, and jumped to land in the U.S. But that for them, they've had such a difficult time re-engaging with their faith because of what a broken world they live in. The story, though, that Jesus tells remind us of love and grace and patience that, that exists in the heart of God that are expressed so consistently to creation. And that's what I turned him back towards. This is who Jesus is. That I don't have an answer for every time that I suffer or that you suffer, but I always know what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. He cared so deeply that he sent the heir. He sent his only son. When he could send no better or no one greater, he sent his own flesh and blood. That that's the story. So we sat together in the parking lot after we arrived at the destination and talked about the grace and love of Jesus and prayed together. Because this is what's riveting about the story is Jesus. And this is what we have to look away from the brokenness of our world to see is not just a scathing accusation here, but that Jesus is painting a beautiful portrait here. And my friends, God never gave up on them, the outsiders, the wicked people here on the earth who mocked and ridiculed and would even beat the ones that came to serve them in the story. If God never gives up on them, then we shouldn't either. And you might feel like the messenger in the story, that you're like, I've got family, man. I tell you, anytime I'm with them, I feel totally beat up on. I have, I have people I work with. I, I feel totally clowned on. I feel rejected and insulted and broken like the people in Jesus' story. Don't give up on them. Jesus didn't. They question his authority, looking for fault, examining for a blemish or flaw, but they found none. And listen, I can have my finger pointed at these people and be like, how dare you question his authority? But let's be honest. How often do we do the same thing? The question is authority. I told you we'd move quickly through the rest of them. The second is that they, they question his integrity as well. Look in your Bible at chapter 12, verse 13. We'll move quickly. It says, then they also sent him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. You should know that these are people who never agree. These are people who never get along. They see the world very differently. But when you have a common enemy, it's easy to rally together. And they come together to catch Jesus in his words. When they had come, they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I might see it. So they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, render then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Again, verse 14, a different translation. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. We know that you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with this truth. Is it right for us to pay this imperial tax to Caesar or not? The question of coins here is not a simple one because Jesus is surrounded by Jews who hated the Romans and what these religious leaders probably are not assuming is that Jesus would blow off Caesar in this moment, but they probably are assuming that the people will blow off Jesus for his failure to do that. Either way, depending on how Jesus responds here, they're convinced that he's either going to end up at the end of the day in trouble with the Romans who will execute him for what he says if he says blow off the tax, or that the people, if it's not that the Romans will execute him, it's that the people would turn on him publicly because he would affirm the Roman Empire and their right to extract this tax from the people. But Jesus instead takes one of the coins, looks at the image, and then says, give it to whom it is due. This tax was the cause for serious angst in the first century. 
It wasn't just a tax. That wasn't just the problem. And there are four different taxes that the people paid. So it was annoying. It was what the tax represented. It represented oppression from the Romans. It also, in the mind of many Jews, it represented rebellion against God because God had said in the commandments that you should not make any graven image. And the line of thinking in Jesus' day, according to those rabbis who were alive, many of them began to believe that you should take that thought of not just having a graven image that you'd worship, but that we should not have any graven image, that you should not be chiseling any image of an animal or a human being at all. None of it. And so even an image of Caesar himself that said the son of God on the coin was a harsh jab and and, and a harsh blow to the Jews and to what their deep convictions were about how they would honor God. When Jesus was just a boy, according to historians, there's a guy from his, his region of the world that we know him from. We know him as Jesus uh, from the region of the Galilee. There was a guy by the name of Judas from Galilee. I think it's in 4 AD. So when Jesus was a young boy, he led a revolt in response to this tax being implemented. They said, there's no way we're paying them that tax and there's no way we're paying it with a coin that has the head of Caesar claiming to be a God. We're not touching it. Judas the Galilean leads a revolt that ends in massive loss of life, but where he raises a sword to fight against a sword. Jesus here, responding to this question, makes it very clear that he's not going to do what Judas the Galilean did. Know that Jesus the Galilean would not fight fire with fire. He would not lift a sword. He would shoulder a cross instead. Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, his name and, and image is imprinted on it, and give to God what belongs to God. Now, it's, it's, we don't have the time to go into it, but God does affirm that we are to submit to governing authorities who are over us, believing that God has placed them over us, except for when they forbid us to do what God commands or they command us to do what God forbids. But what Jesus does here is he takes it a step further, and what he's talking about is not just a coin, but he's talking then to image bearers, human beings made in the image of God, and is appealing to them, give everything that you are unto God. It's Paul writing to the church in Rome saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your act of worship. They examine, they question Jesus about his authority, his integrity, and we do this. We question his integrity often. We say things like, this isn't fair. How could you do this? We question if you're really good, why are all these bad things happening? It's what we're thinking this week for many of us. I just stop and remind myself, Isaiah 55 tells me that his ways are not my ways. In fact, they're high above mine, that they're better than mine, that they're beyond my understanding. I mean, again and again, there's examples of that in scripture of God working things together for good. And I have to believe by faith that that's true. They questioned his integrity, but at the end of that section, it says they stepped back and marveled at him. My friends, like I told you last week, I think sometimes we're guilty of having a desire for a God that's powerful enough for me to be angry at when he doesn't intervene to rescue me from harm and pain, while simultaneously failing, refusing to agree and admit that in his infinite wisdom, he might have reasons for allowing those things that are beyond my ability to understand or comprehend in this moment. We question his authority, his integrity, his theology. And I'll just tell you what these ones, I won't read you through it because we'll come back to this. But they question his theology. The Sadducees come. They're people who only believe the first five books of the Old Testament. They don't believe in a resurrection or afterlife. They don't believe in spiritual beings. And they come saying, hey, if this lady, she marries a guy, he dies. So then his brother marries her, he dies, marries her seven times over. You might remember this story from the life of Jesus. Then in the resurrection, if people rise from the dead and there is an afterlife, who will she be married to? They think that they've caught him in a trap. And Jesus tells them, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he explains that they didn't understand the scriptures. And the scriptures did give good instruction. Uh, if you want a good laugh, uh, Deuteronomy 25 If you read about this, there's good instruction because 3,500 years ago, a woman, if she was left without a a male child who could go to work and care for her and provide for her, then she was left to fend for herself. So this was a good instruction that the people of God did where they would say, okay, if if your husband dies, someone else in the family is going to marry you and take you under their wing. They're going to care for you and make sure you're provided for. 
Deuteronomy 25 adds some humor to it, where if they refuse to do it, you're to take their sandal off, slap them with it, spit in their face, and forevermore they shall be known as the, the family of the sandalless people, or something like that. So, it's a deep insult next time you're really angry at somebody, the family of the unsandaled. So, it's a good thing, but then Jesus jumps into this, the scriptures, and says, don't you know that the scripture says that people neither will be, neither will be married or given in marriage, that they will be like the angels. It doesn't say that we become angels in heaven, but that we become like them when we're there in the presence of God. Now, it's, it's unclear what that'll really look like. What Paul says, he says, what our experience will be like in the resurrection, in our afterlife, is so different from life here that it's the difference between a seed and a tree. It's the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. He talks about the metamorphosis, the transformation that takes place. And then Jesus goes straight for the jugular with them and says, you don't believe in the resurrection. He says, then why in the world does the scriptures record that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why is that recorded where God says that to Moses in the book of Exodus, where he is the active present tense God of a bunch of dead people who no longer exist, who have been snuffed out of existence? The scriptures themselves that you trust have hinted at the resurrection, life in the future, and the power of God. The power of God, and there was a reminder of the power of God right with them, where Lazarus, who had died, remained there. And John's gospel said, because they didn't know what to do with Lazarus, and because of the the big uh, growing story of the one who is dead and made alive again, that they were determined to kill him too. Not just Jesus, but they're determined to kill Lazarus because it doesn't fit in their paradigm or their theology. The other piece of the theology we'll completely say for next week, it's where one of them comes and says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all? And you might know the answer to that question. It's the question. Verse 34, the end of it just says that at the end of all that questioning, that they came and dared not question him anymore. This was it. They were done with the examination. Jesus will finish by then making a statement that really what they're doing is they're questioning his deity. That all of this is just, they're questioning whether or not it's possible that Jesus could be the one that they had longed for. And Jesus will do his best to prove to them that he's so much more than a mere man, that he's, he's the one that had been promised to not just be a child born, but a son given, who would not just be the descendant of King David, but who would be lauded by King David as a greater than David. How would David call his descendant Lord unless his descendant was not just from the line of David, but from a greater line, the line of heaven itself? That's what Jesus does there. And if you don't believe the deity of Christ, it's not for lack of evidence. It's not. Now close your Bible, because here's how we land the plane really quickly. This all happened. Why the 30,000-foot view? Because it all happened leading up to the 14th day of the month of Nisan, where the sacrificial lambs will be slain. It all took place on the day of examination of lambs, where they're looking to see if this will be an acceptable sacrifice. They examine Jesus on that day from every angle and area, and they pronounced publicly that they found no fault in him. In fact, in the parallel passage, Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, it says that then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. And after that, they dared not question him anymore. The religious leaders, track with that, publicly declared Jesus as clean and well, having found no fault in him. Things can look and feel chaotic and out of his control, even in the life of Jesus on this day where he shows up to teach and preach there in the temple with crowds of people around him and it's completely derailed and the whole system is revolting against him and now everything is going crazy as they're hurling these accusations and publicly questioning him. It looks and feels chaotic and out of his control, but it wasn't. Things in my own life presently may feel chaotic and out of his control, but they aren't. Things undoubtedly in our world today, this very hour, feel chaotic and out of his control, but they're not. When I read the story, in the end, I'm left to wonder, how does he do it? Sure, answering them so well and leaving them speechless, but even more so, it looked like things were out of his control. But then you realize he orchestrated every detail. Heaven itself did from eternity. They came to condemn Jesus, and in the end, they confirmed him, didn't they? 
They pronounced their inability to find any fault. They announced him publicly to be without a blemish, without a flaw, on the specific day on the calendar, the day of examination, the very day that lambs were inspected to be seen as to whether or not they'd be good and suitable as a substitute and sacrifice. At the end of it, it says they heard his words and they said, teacher, you've spoken well, but after that, they dared not question him anymore. My friends, we haven't just heard Jesus' words. We got to see what he'd do. We don't just have his words recorded for us. We have his crucifixion. We have his passion, his suffering. When when they heard the words of Jesus, that was it. They no longer needed to question him. It's not just that we hear what he said. We see what he did. In light of the cross, we should should really echo what they say. We We should say something like, well, teacher, You've spoken and done so well, Jesus. And so I'm going to choose to stop questioning you here. Remember, Mark's audience that received this, he's the first of the Gospels written, written in the 60s. His audience that receives it are the early church being terribly persecuted. They're they're being ignited as human candles, thrown to wild animals for sport, What's happening to early followers of Jesus feels chaotic and absolutely out of of God's control. For them to receive this series and sequence of stories as they did, while facing actively crazy persecution like they were, would have left them with a reminder and an invitation. A reminder of Jesus' amazing foreknowledge and power, but an invitation that in spite of the terrifying realization that they're not in control, that they had an invitation to turn towards Jesus and trust the one who clearly is in control, even when things seem totally chaotic and out of control. What about you? Will you turn his direction on a day like today and choose to trust him? Father, thank you that you've recorded these stories, not just for us to know what Jesus said, but for us to see from heaven your authority reigning supreme, to see how you work amidst what is viewed by us as chaos, how you're working to align things and working them for good. God, I don't believe that you cause terrible atrocities. I don't believe that you're the cause, but I do believe the promise that you you are capable of using each one of them that you've promised to use them to work them together for good. And so, Jesus, we look your direction today with faith and with hope. We look the direction not just of the one with wisdom, but the one with such love that he went to a cross for us to demonstrate the profound commitment you have to us. We look your direction with trust today, with trust and with hope that, Jesus, you still reign, that, Jesus, you can work all things together for good, That yes, you are responsible for the fact of human free will, but not the act of it. We don't blame you today, but we do look to you so thankful that you are committed to creation and work things together for good. Jesus, arise and do that even in our broken world, even in this broken moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.